behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And uh, also we have a record of him pointing two of his disciples in the direction of Jesus. And uh, the Apostle John tells us that they followed Jesus. And John the Baptist had said in chapter 3, verse 30, concerning the Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, the personal ministry of Christ uh, began, and in chapter 2, we have John recording for us the first miracle of Christ, and that being the turning of water into wine at Cana of Galilee. And the great signs or miracles that Jesus performed authenticated the fact that he was indeed the Son of God, and I think we have uh, noted on previous occasions that, for example, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And in that context, the disciples of Christ began to offer a variety of answers. They said, Some say, You're John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? And it was uh, to this question that Peter responded by saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, the book of John is intended to produce faith in the lives of people. And we must come to the same conclusion that Peter and the other apostles came to, and that being that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And so the signs of the miracles that are recorded in the book of John uh, are, to, are intended to inspire within us faith. And we have noted that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that uh, the apostle said, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the miracles that were recorded, and in the book of John, there are some seven signs or miracles that uh, John records uh, that have been performed by the Christ. And in chapter 6, we're going we're to come upon two more miracles. Uh, the first that we're going to read about has to do with his feeding some 5,000-plus individuals. And uh, uh, it's one of the great miracles that he performs, and it certainly shows his power over matter. And then the second miracle that John records uh, has to do with him walking on water. And so uh, we want to take a look at that in just a moment. But let's think for a moment about the miracles of Jesus uh, as recorded by John. And then we're going to note the messages of Jesus in this same chapter uh, concerning uh, the fact that he is the bread of life. Now, back in chapter 4, you remember Jesus talked about he had living water to offer. Well, the figure he's going to use for life in chapter 6 is not water, but it's going to be bread. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But let's think for a moment about Jesus as he feeds the 5,000. And uh, the place of the miracle in verses 1 through 4 uh, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, and uh, this would have been north of uh, the city of Jerusalem or the province of Judea. And uh, verse 2, then a great multitude followed him. 
because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, as we said a moment ago, the signs were intended to produce belief. They authenticated his work. In other words, they gave credibility to the fact that he was the Son of God. Uh, and the works that he was doing, uh, no doubt, were in accordance with the will of his heavenly Father. But all of these signs drew multitudes of people. Now, what John is going to bear out in chapter 6 is that some of these folks, they're following him, uh, not so much because of the signs, but because of what they could get as a result of the miracles that he performed. And in this context, it's going to have to do with uh, the loaves and fish. But look at verse 3. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, back in uh, the book of Matthew, in chapters 5 through 7, we read of Jesus going up into a mountain and there dispensing with uh, the great Sermon on the Mount. And uh, uh, here we find Jesus up in a mountain and there sitting with his disciples. Verse 4, uh, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And uh, the Passover occurred in the month uh, of April. Uh, then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, and really this uh, has to do with the problem that is posed by the Messiah, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now look at verse 6. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now think for a moment about the opportunity. What if you had had the opportunity to spend time with Christ? What if you had had the opportunity to have been a part uh, of his uh, earthly ministry? Would the signs, the miracles, and the words that he spoke, would they have made a favorable impression upon your life? Would your faith have been growing and maturing, or would it or would it have been uh, stagnant or stale? And so Jesus here poses this question to Philip. And uh, note, if you would, in verse 7, the pessimism of the disciples of the Messiah. First of all, uh, we note what Philip says. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. In other words, uh, According to Philip, a small fortune was needed to feed the multitude. Uh, a denarii would have been the equivalent of about a day's wage. And so what Philip is saying is that, uh, you know, 200 days' worth of wages is not enough to feed this great multitude of people. And uh, bear in mind that Philip had already been privileged to, to have seen some of the great miracles or uh, he had already been privileged to see the great miracles of Christ. For example, the turning of water into wine back in John chapter 2 at Cana of Galilee. And uh, uh, as we said a moment ago, Jesus asked this question to test him. But then in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? In other words... Uh, uh, here's a young man that has uh, a scarce amount of food, but how are you going to feed all of these people with just uh, you know, five barley loaves and two fish? 
Well, look at verse 10. In verse 10, we have the power of the Messiah. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. You're talking about a large company of people here. Uh, I think about, uh, well, yesterday morning at breakfast or last night, uh, what did we have? Maybe 40, 45 people together, and there was a large amount of food, but, uh, and uh, the house was full. But uh, imagine if you had 5,000 people and you had to feed all those people. Well, look at verse 11. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. Uh, I think there's a principle here uh, regarding the thanksgiving that we should offer the Lord uh, for all of the blessings that, that uh, he attends to us. Uh, that would also be inclusive of our daily bread. Uh, go back for a moment to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we have the model prayer. And of course in verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. And so we need to be people of gratitude, and I think that uh, when we sit down to eat, uh, it's always uh, a good practice to give God thanks. Of course, James said that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And Paul also taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that in everything we are to give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, so we are to be a thankful people. And so we find here Jesus giving thanks. And then the Bible says he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Uh, now note the surplus of food that is left over by the multitude. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. I think it's worth pointing out that verse 12 says that after Jesus had fed them, that they were filled. And uh, I think there's a principle here for us, and that is that Christ can satisfy uh, the deep earnings of our soul. In other words, we can find true peace and contentment in Christ. And uh, with that in mind, turn over to the book of uh, Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. We talk about the peace that passes all understanding, and of course Paul speaks of that in chapter 4 verse 7 of Philippians. And the satisfaction that... Uh, the fact that Christ can satisfy the longings of our soul. But look, if you would, at Philippians chapter 4, and note what Paul says to the saints in Philippi. Remember, Paul is writing. Paul is in prison. Philippians is one of the four 
uh, prison epistles. But look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now note verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, if you want to uh, engage in an interesting study, go back to chapter 1 in the book of Philippians and just start underlining every time that Paul mentions uh, Christ, and you'll uh, be amazed at the number of times that, that Paul alludes to Jesus Christ. And uh, it has been said before, I think, I think it's the case, that uh, Paul's life was saturated with Christ. But in chapter 4, uh, of course, Paul, no doubt, has many needs in life, but he says he has learned in whatever state he's in to be content. Now, we talk about contentment and uh, satisfaction and satisfying uh, the needs of our soul. I believe that contentment is a, is a characteristic or trait that is learned. That's what Paul says here. He has learned. It's not something that just comes automatically, but rather we learn how to be content in every situation that we face in life. And so in verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now look at verse 19. In verse 19, Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And so Christ, the Lord, can supply whatever needs we may have in this life. And uh, back in John chapter 6, we find that uh, these people uh, had been filled. And I think that uh, we too uh, can uh, be filled, spiritually speaking, in the sense that uh, the, satisfied, the longings of our soul can be satisfied. All right, verse 13 says, as we noted a moment ago, they filled 12 baskets with fragments of five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And so there was an abundance or a surplus of food that was left over. Now verse 14, in verses 14 and 15, uh, we have the praise given to the Messiah. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now the sign that he performed that is uh, uh, feeding this great multitude of people signified that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, as, as has already been noted, uh, it was simply evidence that he was from God. And uh, that's what the signs did. They authenticated his ministry. Yes. I, I think that... No, I, I think that... Uh, the, the num the, you know, the numbering here was just inclusive of the men. I think that uh, there, were, there were women and children present, but, uh, oh yeah, I think, it was, I think there were more than 5,000, but uh, the numbering just 
at least on this occasion, just included the men. All right. Uh, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. What was the, you know, when you think about the Jews and their perception of the Messiah and his kingdom, what were they looking for? A spiritual kingdom or a physical? Physical kingdom, that's right. They were looking for a physical kingdom. Uh, look over in John chapter 18 for a moment. In John chapter 18, verse 36. Here Paul, or rather, here Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. In verse 33, Pilate had asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, if you're a king, you have to have a kingdom. And in the minds of many of those people in the first century, if they thought of a kingdom, they thought about an earthly kingdom. So look at verse 37, or rather verse 36. Somebody read, uh, somebody read chapter 18, verse 36 of John. All right, thank you. So here Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is not some earthly uh, kingdom. It's not something that can be uh, measured geographically. Uh, turn back to the book of Luke for a moment. Look at Luke chapter 17. Look at Luke 17, 20 and 21. Somebody read Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, if you would. All right. So here Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come with observation. And as, as uh, I said a moment ago, it's not something that could be measured geographically. And uh, the kingdom of God that, that Jesus talked about was a spiritual institution. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, you remember Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And G, uh, rather Daniel foretold of those four world empires that would rise and fall in successive nature. He began with Babylon. Well, Babylon was an earthly kingdom. Babylon would fall to the Medo-Persians. Again, an earthly kingdom. Medo-Persia, uh, the Medes and the Persians, would later give way to the Grecian kingdom. And then the Grecian kingdom would, uh, in turn yield to the Roman kingdom. And so in verse 44, Daniel said, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And so here Daniel's not talking about an earthly kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom. As a matter of fact, in that same verse he said, it shall never be destroyed. 
Now, in relation to this, turn now to Mark chapter 9. Look at Mark 9, verse 1. Somebody read Mark 9, verse 1, please. All right, thank you. Now, in the New Testament, uh, as well as the Old Testament, the terms kingdom and church are sometimes used interchangeably. And so the reference here to the kingdom, like Luke in Luke 17, is a reference to the church. And so Jesus here is saying that there are some standing here that would not taste death. In other words, they would not die until they saw the kingdom of God present or come with power. Now, over in Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until he said, you be endued or endowed with power from on high. When were they endowed with power from on high? Well, on Pentecost Day. They received that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. And Peter uh, speaks the first gospel sermon recorded by Luke, and we have uh, the keys to the kingdom, uh, the keys opening the kingdom, in other words, telling people what to do to enter the kingdom. They needed to, to repent and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. But the kingdom was a spiritual institution. Now, there are some people today that have the idea that, that the kingdom is yet to come. Well, the kingdom has already come. And the kingdom and the church are one and the same. The idea that uh, has been floated, that I guess the idea that's been floated by some is that when Jesus came into this world, he was rejected by the Jews, and because he was rejected by the Jews, he failed in his mission, and thus he was unable to establish the kingdom, so God set up what is called the church age. Well, the church and the kingdom uh, were in accordance with God's eternal plan, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And Paul, look at Colossians 1 for a moment. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Somebody read Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Thank you. So here, Paul said that when we obey the gospel, we are delivered out of the power of darkness. That would be that sphere dominated by the devil. And he said we have been translated or transferred into the kingdom of the Son of his dear love. And the reference here is to the church. When we're baptized into Christ, we are placed in the body of Christ. Now, the Bible says that God adds us to the church 
But Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. That is, we're baptized into Christ, into the church of Christ. Uh, and then also look at Revelation chapter 1. Look at Revelation chapter 1 at verse 9. As I said a moment ago, some people have the idea that the kingdom is yet to come. But listen to what John says in chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So according to, according to John the apostle, he was in the kingdom. Now, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us, and I think that uh, the thing to remember is that we're in the kingdom and the kingdom is in us. And uh, uh, the Lord is the king of the kingdom, and he is our Lord. He is our king. And so he reigns or rules in our lives. Uh, what he says uh, we are to do. All right, go back now, if you would, to John chapter 6. In John 6, 15, it is said that Jesus departed again to a mountain by himself alone. And when evening came, and here we have uh, uh, the second miracle that is now recorded by John, and this has to do with uh, the Lord walking on water. In verse uh, 16, well, verses 16 and 17, we have the disciples at sea. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Uh, apparently, they had been on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been Bethsaida, and they were traveling west towards Capernaum. And uh, John said it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now, verse 18, we have the disturbance at sea. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, we are, in, we are given insight into the distress of the disciples at sea. So when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's interesting that, that John points out that the disciples were fearful on this occasion. But look at what Jesus declares unto them in verse 20. Jesus said, It is I, do not be afraid. When it comes to Christ, I guess we could ask this question. What do we have to fear if the Lord is at our side? Do we really believe that the Lord is with us on a daily basis? Turn over to the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 for a moment. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. In verses 5 and 6. It 
Somebody read verses 5 and 6 if you would. Thank you. So here the Hebrew writer said, speaking of the Lord, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. You remember God, when Joshua succeeded Moses, uh, basically told him that as he was with Moses, so he would be with him. And he said, uh, in short, I will, you know, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And uh, that's what the Lord is saying to us as, as his people today. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Uh, and as the Hebrew writer points out, the Lord is our helper. And uh, he says, I will not fear. And verse 6, the beginning part says, so that we may boldly say. Now with that in mind, turn back to Mark 6. In Mark chapter 6, we have uh, the, the same account of Jesus walking on water uh, as recorded by John. But note what Mark has to say concerning uh, this situation. In verse 50, when uh, the disciples saw Jesus, the Bible says they were troubled. Immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, or take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. When I think about uh, this, this command given by Christ to take courage, I'm reminded of what the Hebrew writer said when he said, so that we may boldly say, we can have boldness or courage or confidence in knowing that the Lord will be with us. As Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Where can we go? Just think about all of the things that we may face in this life. Wherever we go, whatever we do, the Lord's going to be with us. Even if we walk, as the psalmist said, down into the valley of the shadow of death, what does uh, the psalmist say? I'll be with you. So uh, the Lord is going to be with us. Read sometimes Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the psalmist, it's really a very beautiful psalm, whereby the psalmist talks about the omnipresence of the Lord. In other words, God is ever-present, and there's, there's nowhere you can, you can go to escape his presence, whether the sea, uh, whether uh, the grave, doesn't matter. The Lord will be there. And so I think that's a great lesson for us. All right, before our time is gone, let's go back again to John 6. Is that the first bell? Gotcha. Uh, note, note, if you would, in John chapter 6, uh, verse 21. In verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now I take this to mean that, uh, uh, that really a miracle occurred here. That boat that was in the sea immediately uh, got to land. 
Uh, you think about uh, those instances that are recorded in the Bible when Jesus would heal someone and how the text will say, and immediately. In other words, uh, their, their physical condition had immediately been rectified or been uh, corrected. For example, back in chapter 5, when Jesus healed this man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now look at verse 9. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And so here's an instance where uh, they're at sea, and Jesus is now with them, and their, their boat is immediately transported to shore. All right, now in verse 25, or rather verse 22, uh, we're going to note, uh, we're going to begin noting the messages of Jesus. And Jesus is going to talk about how that he is the bread of life. And he's going to make uh, some public statements. And then he's going to make some more private statements to his disciples. Uh, down in about verse 60, John tells us that after, after Jesus had talked to these great multitudes about being the bread of life, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus then asked the question, will you also go away? And uh, Jesus asked uh, his disciples, are you going to go away? And Simon Peter responds by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And then John records Peter as saying, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, uh, even though some willingly and knowingly leave the Lord, and uh, the text says that their response was, This is a hard saying, or this is a difficult saying. Who can accept it? And there are some hard sayings of Jesus. There are some things that he says that are very difficult to accept. But if we believe him to be the Lord and we want to honor him and do his will, then whatever he says, uh, we're going to strive uh, to do in our lives. So next week, the Lord willing, I, I don't want us to begin this now, but next week we're going to talk about uh, the messages of Jesus, and I would encourage you to read uh, these verses. And uh, the Jews in this, in this context, they're going to make reference to the manna that Moses fed, uh, or rather the Moses that, or rather the manna, manna that uh, the children of Israel received in the wilderness. And uh, in the wilderness, some, uh, I guess, a half a million people or so were being fed by God. And uh, their question is, are you greater than Moses? You fed about 5,000. Well, look at all the people that, that Moses fed. Well, what they didn't understand was God was the one feeding those people in the wilderness. And so next week, the Lord willing, we will begin in John chapter 6, uh, picking up in about verse 25. Until then, hope to see you next Sunday morning.